It's from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we have heard uh, your word this morning. It's our hope, our prayer that you would write it on our hearts, that you would help us to know what's true, that you would help us to grow, not just in knowledge, but in faith. That you would help us to grow in fruitfulness. That you would help us to be a people who observe with our whole life this Advent truth. Would you teach us, help us to see how mercy comes through the line of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So your home, some of you are going to be heading back to some home, some other place. Or your home might be here. Or your home might be just kind of wherever you go. It might be the place where you lay your head. You might be a person who's never really experienced that sense of hominess. And it's just wherever you go. You know, you carry your world on your back like a snail. You know, your home's where you're safe. Or where you you rest your bones, right? Robert Frost once said that home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in, right? That's home. But that's not always true, is it? Because sometimes we may feel like we can't actually go home. And we can't actually be welcomed back home. Or even if we did go back home, it wouldn't feel like home. For all kinds of reasons. So there's a sense of homelessness that sets in, sometimes physically, if you're really and truly homeless. Sometimes emotionally, spiritually. There's a sense in which we're We don't have a place to be. And it may be because of all kinds of things, not just conflict you may be in with other people, but you may be in a place in your life where you're struggling with mental illness. You struggle with depression. You may be crushed by something you've done in your past. You might be a person who is so worked over by perfectionism that you find it hard to even sit in your own skin anywhere. And so you never feel home. You never feel like you belong whether it's at home physically or church or wherever. If you felt that kind of homelessness, right? If you felt that kind of distance, it might be challenging to believe that there's anything that can be said or done or anything that can be written in the Scriptures that can speak to precisely that kind of homelessness. But in God's Word this morning, Christianity shows us this Christ whose ancestor was a homeless widow. One of the mothers of Jesus. A homeless widow. Ruth, the outsider, the homeless. Why feature the homeless in the line of Christ? Last week we asked, why feature a prostitute in the line of Christ? Why feature the homeless in the line of Christ? Because all of us, 
Every single one of us have dealt with this sort of sense of homelessness. Some, some way or another, we've felt like we don't fit. And so if, we're on, if we can't look at Jesus' coming into the world as an answer to that kind of homelessness, that deep-seated sense of not belonging, then you might as well just take down the lights and all the decorations and everything else. Because Jesus' birth and coming into the world actually engages in just that sense of unbelonging in the way we need most. To miss that would be to miss the very thing we're looking for. So we heard from Genesis chapter 1. I mean, uh, Matthew chapter 1. We heard about two women also last week, the last two weeks in the line of Jesus, Tamar and Rahab. And this morning we look at the third of five Ruths. And you heard the genealogy, all of these names, the rhythm of the names, the building of a story. This is what Matthew does. And we mentioned last week the tax collector. Matthew had to have loved the fact that there are at least some people in the line of Jesus who were less thought of or, or close to as little thought of as he was as a tax collector. And we find these different people, these surprising names. So who is Ruth? Now, I can, you know, we're not going to read through, obviously, the entire book of Ruth, but we are going to touch on a couple of things that are present in the book. The first thing is this, just kind of knowing the background. In the middle of a famine in Israel, Naomi and her husband, they, they moved to Moab, which is a, a, a kind of an adjoining country to Israel, and they did not play well. They didn't play nicely, Israel and Moab. As a matter of fact, there were regulations in place that kept you from being in real partnership with someone from Moab. You couldn't actually invite someone from Moab into the fellowship of the Lord, into God's own house. They had to become an Israelite in order to belong because to be from Moab was to be unclean. It was to not belong. It's a serious cross-cultural situation. So Naomi and her husband, they move out there and, and her two sons. And while they're there, her husband dies. Her two sons take wives who become Ruth and, and Orpah. And then her two sons die. Her husband's dead. Naomi's husband's dead. Her two sons are dead. And now she has these two daughters-in-law. What is she going to do? So they hear, she hears, that uh, the famine that was in Israel that kind of drove them out to Moab in the first place is over. So she decides, I'm going to go back. My family has holdings and land in Israel, and I'm going to go back. And, and she tells her daughters-in-law to go. Go back to the place of your youth. Find someone else to, to, to be a husband to you, right? And so Orpah, uh, she, she embraces Naomi and she goes, but Ruth doesn't. Ruth says, I'm going to go wherever you go. She pledges not to leave Naomi. This Moabite pledges not to leave the Israelite as the Israelite heads back to Israel without a husband and without sons. So Ruth's story is a story of mercy. And, and that's convenient because all of our stories are stories of mercy. All of us are objects of mercy. It would have been okay, if you, you imagine, you think, it would have been okay for the line of Christ to kind of move through an appropriate line. You know what I mean? And when I say an appropriate line, I mean a group of people who looked right, 
who were wealthy, who were healthy, who hadn't lost children, who weren't widows or widowers, right? They'd be kind of heroes, paragons of faithfulness. And we'd say, well, that makes sense. That makes sense as the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the line. But that's not what God chooses to do at all. It's not an unbroken chain of privilege and wealth that leads to Jesus. It's mercy in the line of Jesus. Naomi and Ruth, they return to Israel. And everything's not immediately okay. (laughs) They return to Israel and Ruth goes into the fields in Israel as a foreigner and she begins to glean. What, what, what gleaning was is it was it was this regulation that was uh, that, that that was enforced in Israel, where a righteous person, a righteous Israelite, they would keep uh, a portion of their field. They would not harvest to the very edge of their field, right? You know, you know that 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 person who like who plants something on the other side of your fence and it like leans into your property. They're kind of cheating. You know, they're kind of using like your property too. You know, they're getting all that they can get. Well, in in Israel, you were to kind of leave this section. You were to cultivate, right? So you were to sweat for this part of the land, but you were to keep from harvesting that portion of the land. And so Ruth goes into these fields and after the harvesters are done, she's able to take the wheat left over and wheat from the edges of the crop, and she's taking them with her as subsistence, right? This is what she is now. This is what she's chosen to walk into, a foreigner in a foreign land taking charity. She learns that the field that she's gleaning on is owned by this man named Boaz, all right? He's a relative of her dead husband. And now this is like a second mercy. The first mercy was that there's this gleaning provision given so that she could still eat. And now there's the second provision that's maybe a little odder to us that that, uh, they called leveret marriage. And the idea of leveret marriage, I'm just going to kind of tell you the rest of the story before we get there. But the idea was if you were widowed and you had no heirs, a relative of your dead spouse could marry you in order to produce an offspring that could carry on the family name of the husband who died. And now for us, that's hard to imagine. It doesn't sound like mercy until you realize that a woman who was widowed who had no land was completely unprotected by the modern standards of the day. She could be oppressed in any number of ways. She could be pulled into slavery. She could be used in all kinds of ways that would have been disgusting and awful and horrible. And there's nothing you could do about it because she had no standing. So God's people begin to create these laws, these customs that provide protection for people who previously had no protection. So Ruth finds out that she's gleaning in a field. God has led her to a field that belongs to someone who could redeem her widowhood, right? So this is what's happening. It's really incredible. So already what God is kind of doing here. So a a poor kind of Moabite widow, she finds a place here in Israel as an unlikely object of God's mercy and a great-grandmother, a grandmother of the King David. A grandmother of the King David. A great-great-great-grandmother, right, multiple times, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a grim situation. This woman was a minority, unprotected, undocumented, no money, no power, no clout. 
God chooses this one to be a part of the story. So let's think about God's grace here. What about God's kind of gerrymandering grace, you know? You know the gerrymandering? You know what gerrymandering is? You know, it's the way in which we draw political districts in America in order to weed out the people that are unlikely to vote for us and to weed in the people who will, right? There are voting districts that we draw that look like amoebas, that look like ducks, that look like barbells, right? And the hope is to try and get out those people who will belong to some other district and to bring in the people who will belong to our district. And this is not the way in which God works. His gerrymandering is not to exclude other people. His gerrymandering is to include people. What does he do? God draws these odd districts. He includes a Moabite widow. He redraws the lines in ways that no one else does. This is weird monotheistic behavior. Okay? Ordinarily, what a God, what you would do if you had a world religion and you wanted many different kinds of people to embrace, you know what you would do? You would create many different gods. Or you'd create one God who had many different aspects, who could appeal to the many different kinds of people, right? But this is one God whose love is set on multiple different kinds of people who kind of gerrymanders and moves his district, right, and includes people that he wouldn't include, like, by the way, you and me, who by any standard of the day are the farthest off of far off people. Think about it. Now, aside from me, who, you know, of course, you know, I'm half Jewish. So the rest of you are Gentile unbelievers, right? And who have been brought in by the incredible grace of God. But the reality is we were not anywhere close. And yet God has gerrymandered and brought us in. Just sit on that for a moment. Just think about that. He wanders to gather people in. So Boaz kind of reflects the character of God. We, we see his graciousness and his willingness to to provide a place for Ruth. He finds out she's gleaning in his land and he protects her. He says, look, stay with my harvesters so that you won't be hurt. And then he sends her back to her mother-in-law with stuff, with increased grain, as much as she can carry. And then he decides to redeem through leveret marriage this woman's widowhood. They get married, even though, and it's interesting, you know, there's a part in uh, Ruth, and this is kind of going off script a little bit, I just want to tell you, just there's this portion, there's this moment in Ruth that if you don't understand what's going on, you know, it's like uh, uh, Boaz goes to the city gates, and there's somebody else who's a little more closely related to Ruth's dead husband, so he has a chance first to redeem this marriage, but he shows up and and uh, he, he decides, ah, you know, it's a little too much for me to take care of this responsibility. I don't want to spend my money in this way. I, he's, he's kind of like, well, I don't know. He's kind of like us. <laughs> we don't want to spend our money in ways we don't want to spend it, right? And so he's like, I don't want to do this. And Boaz says, I'll do it. And they exchange sandals, which I'm not even going to get into here, but it's just an amazing way in which this business thing was transacted, right? So it's really an incredible picture of Boaz who takes a woman who's not only poor and is not only widowed, but is also unwanted by a person who should have wanted her. Grabs hold of her. Ruth chapter 2, 
verse 11. Here's what we really learn, right? We, we've got lots of characters in this story, in this true story, and yet the real character behind it all isn't Boaz and isn't Ruth and isn't Naomi. It's actually the God who establishes this kind of grace. And look what people who follow this God do. Ruth chapter 2, 11 through 13. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land. And by the way, not just your native land, but your native gods as well. To leave your native land was to let go of all of that. You came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see how Boaz loves the Lord? This is the God, the one under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. We can spend time thinking about the incarnation in distant, philosophical, esoteric tones. We can think we can, we can put it together like a Dutch theologian with three pages full of semicolons trying to tell this truth. Or we can say this, homeless people get a home in Christ. That part of the line of Jesus is dealing with this incredible, abandoned, widowed hope. Jesus, more than the reason for the season, He's also this brick and mortar. He is a home. He's the door that locks you in. To a place to belong. He is himself a place where we, we not only live, but we hang up the things that we cherish, the photos of those we love. We make it a home. We find a place to belong in Christ. Advent is this sign of a real and true, the realest and the truest home. Ruth finds it in this man who was the Redeemer. That was the formal classification of someone who would enter into levirate marriage, her Redeemer. We too find this home in our own Redeemer. So if we are like Ruth, if that's what Advent is giving us here, if that's what the genealogy in Matthew 1 is attempting to show us, our family relationship, if we are objects of mercy like that, then we have to make our habitat the, the, the stuff that we're in control of, we have to make it a place where gleaning happens. We have to make those places of mercy too. Our ethic has to be driven by our own experience of God's mercy. So, so for Israel, gleaning laws made sense. And you actually, you actually read this in, uh, in, in the Old Testament Israel's gleaning laws made sense because they were once wanderers and sojourners too. This is how the Bible describes them. You do this because you were once wanderers. You do this because you were once sojourners. You do this because you were once hungry. God gives them a leveret marriage law because you were once the ones without a legacy. You were once the ones without a future. So the struggle in a sermon like this is that we think, well, how do I grow into this kind of 
mercy? How do I, like Boaz, own God's character and his word and reflect it in the way that I live? How do I do that? Because I, left to myself, I don't do that naturally, right? How do I do that? If you struggle to love your neighbor, if you struggle to express this kind of mercy that God is calling us to in Advent, the solution is not to guilt yourself. You might feel that, like, well, I got a lot of catching up to do, right? I got to do all the kinds of good stuff that I haven't been doing, you know, kind of the, the Santa Claus morality. I got to turn the ledger in my favor here. You know, I've done a lot of bad things. I got to make it good. It's not to guilt yourself. And it's not to grind it out of kind of your morality, like, well, I should be good, so I'll be good, right? Neither of those things are going to serve you really well, and they're not going to serve you very long. The solution isn't to do that. To grow in love and mercy for others, it has to come directly from the mercy that you receive from God. It has to come from your understanding, that that singular theological truth, that like Ruth, you are an object of mercy. Before you are, you know, beautiful and befriended, and, you know, before you have 2.5 children and a, a wonderful home, before you have all the stuff that you think makes you into something, before you have the career path you want, before you have the education, before any of that, you are, you must be an object of God's mercy. This is the story of the scriptures over and over again. Until you're comfortable with that, until I'm comfortable with that, that we must glean from God. That's the character trait we have to grow into. The beauty of who you know Ruth is in this text is that she goes into the gleaning field. She goes. She walks on that field and she owns her identity as one who gleans. You and I must own our identity as ones who glean from God. We must. We have to grow in that grace. If you don't do that, if we aren't willing to own that, if we aren't willing to glean, if we aren't willing to be the ones who do that, then the best that we'll be able to do, you won't be able to uh, kind of offer more than patronizing comfort or kind of your, your guilty kind of good works, your altruism, a little bit of altruism here and there. You won't be able to offer anything of real substance to your spouse who sins against you or your children who are crushed by their own high expectations and feel worthless, you won't be able to offer much mercy there. Until we settle on the fact that we are objects of mercy, it'll be hard for anyone in our lives to receive mercy from us. It'll all come with strings attached. Judgment attached. Disappointment attached. We have to own our place as objects of mercy. There's this moment in the story of Ruth. Some of you, you know, look, no, no judgment here. Some of you have only heard of the book of Ruth because you've gone to weddings where Ruth has been mentioned, okay? This is like the only reason to read the book of Ruth is so that you can use this portion in your wedding, right? In Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, there's this great pledge of faithfulness. And it's always a little weird to think about at the moment in a wedding that actually this pledge is from, you know, a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. But still, nonetheless, um, these are the words, right? These are the beautiful words that we tend to think of and we, we grab hold of and we're like, it's a great moral truth, right? Ruth says this, Ruth chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me. Remember, this is when Naomi says, look, I'm old, you're not, 
You could still get a husband and start over. Go. I'm going to go back to Israel. And Ruth the Moabite says, no, I'm not going. And Naomi says, no, yeah, you really should. And Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. This is Ruth's pledge. But Ruth's pledge only makes sense in the greater, broader context of a God who makes a bigger and better pledge. Before it was Ruth's truth, betrothal, it was God's own truth and betrothal. This is how God said the same thing, okay? Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations from an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he says in the book of Exodus, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then he doesn't end there. He says, for this is the covenant. Well, you shall actually you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers from the Ezekiel. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Do you recognize this betrothal, this idea that God again and again and again is making this pledge? And it's not even over yet because in Jeremiah 31, 33, the, the weeping prophet Jeremiah, um, he, he writes, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ruth lived with the godly Naomi. She was ready to leave her old country and her old gods because she had heard of this God. She had followed in Naomi's faith. She had seen and heard this God at work. And out of her springs this beautiful pledge recorded in Scripture. God goes with us. God's response to our widowhood and brokenness and whatever else is to go with us, to make us objects of mercy. This is what God does. As a matter of fact, Jesus, as he's born, is called Emmanuel. That's the sign of, of God's love that kind of gerrymanders. It goes all kinds of crooked ways. It crosses weird boundaries. It overcomes prejudices. God with us. Where we go, where we get lost and fall. This is what God does. So what kind of church lives in that space, right? If God is going to kind of redistrict, if he's going to say, these are my people and this is my truth. And you are my beloveds of mercy. What kind of church lives there? I think about Naomi when she goes back to Israel there's not like a big balloon party, right? There's not a, hey, Naomi, welcome back. She comes back and people say, 
Isn't that the one that used to have the husband and the sons? She says this. Naomi tells them that she no longer goes by her former name. Don't call me Naomi. Call me well of bitterness. Which is not a choice that many people make for naming their children, by the way. This is my child, well of bitterness. Well of bitterness. This is how she defines herself. I'm good for nothing. But in the end of Ruth's story, Naomi becomes the nurse of the child that carries on her son's name. Naomi holds to her chest the baby, the beating heart that God has not left her. Can you imagine? She is an object of mercy, holding to herself the proof that God's promise is not over. Naomi is the widowed, barren, bitter one, unlikely as any to be in the story of Jesus, but there she is. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God we serve. This is incredible truth. So the lines of God's grace, if we're going to be that kind of church, if we're going to own this reality, then we have to draw the proper lines ourselves. We have to properly district as a church, okay? It means as a pastor, I have to keep preaching the gospel. A gospel that resonates clearly the truth that God brings us. I have to continue to preach the gospel. We have to have a worship service that welcomes in people from all over the place. That preaches a gospel of God's glory and not our works. We have to be that kind of church. We have to welcome those kinds of people. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray have to be those truths. And also this, and I want to welcome it. All the stories of God's people have to be able to be heard here too. You've heard me talk about this before. I would love to have the testimony from the person who's willing to say, I am Mara, well of bitterness. Okay? We have to be able to hear all of those stories. We have to be able to hear all that God is doing. We have to hear the, the worries that God's not going to redeem my suffering. We have to be willing to share that. We have to be willing to say it out loud. We have to be willing to, to admit it even now. And then once that's done, we have to acknowledge it. Hear me. We have to acknowledge that truth. We have to pray about it. And we have to eat and drink and feast as if it's not true, as if God's really going to redeem it. That's how we become that kind of church. That's how we draw those lines. So that the people that, comes in at, the people that come in at New City Presbyterian Church don't get the misconception that you get here by being good. And you get here by never struggling. And you get here by not being clinically depressed. And you get here by not struggling with any number of health, physical, emotional, uh, socioeconomic factors, whatever it is. We have to district in the church the way that God districts. Advent isn't a fairy tale. It's not a story. You know, our fairy tale. It's not a story about how beautiful people get more beautiful clothes and then we realize how beautiful they are, right? which is how most of our fairy tales work. Advent is not a fairy tale. Advent is about light in darkness. Real light in real darkness. 
Bringing a kingdom that sets captives free. The story of Ruth is about what happens when mercy comes into the world at the most grim. And we realize that Jesus is the one who gives us a field to glean. And we realize that Jesus is the bridegroom who marries the widowed bride. We realize that Jesus is the one who becomes a God for people who followed false gods. Well, uh, <laughs> Wynton Marcellus, jazz virtuoso, trumpeter, he was playing at a club fairly recently. There happened to be a, a music writer in the audience. And he was shocked to see Marcellus playing at this club. And he tells a story about uh, one solo that they had kind of, kind of left for him in the set. And it was called, the song was called, uh, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. This is the song, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. It's a, it's a romantic piece. It's very sad and longing and mournful. Marcellus starts to play in this club in the middle of nowhere. This music writer is amazed. And of course it's beautiful. And as you listen, as you listen to this piece of music, okay, you can... You can almost hear the words. Marcellus would, would from time to time kind of linger in the middle of playing. He'd take breaths. And he, he almost seemed as melancholic as the words. And it reaches this climax in the piece. And you, you hear, again, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And he waits. And you wait for the resolution. And everybody is on the edge of their seats and a cell phone rings. Loud. It plays this beep, this really loud, you know, non-kind of cacophonal. It's not, it's not good. It's not a good sound. There's, there's not a beautiful cell phone. It is this crazy beeping that you cannot ignore. And the writer said the music was lost. The beauty was lost. Everything he had built was un, it had unraveled in that moment. Anybody who's ever performed anything anywhere knows the sadness of this moment, right? It's done. There's nothing you can do. It all unravels. And here's the way that this uh, writer described what happened next. He said, Marcellus paused for a beat, motionless. And his eyebrows arched. And I scrawled on the sheet of a, note, of a of notebook, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marcellus replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. Then he repeated it. And he began improvising variations on the tune. And the audience slowly came back to him. And in a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left it off. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. With you. He said the, the ovation was tremendous. You are the next note after magic ruined. The church is the next note after things unravel 
Advent captures the unraveling. And Jesus is the one who reworks. The ruin is waiting for your and my improvisation. It's waiting for us to provide a field where people can glean. To draw people to us. The widowed world and give it a place. Look, you're not Marcellus, okay? <laughs> Neither am I. We're like, you know, Marcellus is Jesus. We're, we're Marcellus' side players. You're one of the ladies in the band. I'm one of the men in the band who on occasion can play a note. And that's our calling. Our calling is to participate in the reweaving together of a world that's gone haywire. To provide home and housing for the homeless world. Your compassion when your child needs it. Your courage when your marriage is on the rocks and requires you to be the first person to say you're sorry. Your willingness to get up off the canvas and love your neighbor to play the music of a world put together again. That's the story of Ruth and our story. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father,